Father God, we love you. We thank you so much for today. Today's a new day for us to rejoice and be glad in. Lord, I don't know what anybody's bringing into church today, but you know. I'd pray that by your spirit, whatever we're bringing into church today, you would soften hearts, you would make what's dead come alive, and you would just be with us as we go through God's word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, Micah mentioned, my name is Brian Hager. Um, If we haven't had a chance to meet, you might see me behind the drum set. You might see me and my wife working in Redeemer Kids, etc. I'm also a student of uh, Union School of Theology, so a little ad if you're interested in seminary. It's pretty amazing. Do you think that God likes you? Or is there a version of you that you feel like he can actually accept? Maybe you put that version of yourself on during Christian things, like coming to church, worshiping, Bible studies. And maybe some of that's not so bad. Like if we're just trying to give God our best and give other people our best, maybe that version of ourselves is actually coming from a good place. What I'm hoping we see today is that God not only loves you, of course, at your best, he also loves you when you're just trying to hold it all together. He loves you when you've stretched yourself too thin. In college, I caught the beginning of a cultural wave where I think authenticity was starting to become the gold standard of who a person should be. Like, as long as I was being true to myself, it didn't really matter what other people thought of me. And, it, you know, that makes sense in one, in one way because who would want somebody who's completely fake or inauthentic? You know, we don't want that. I think maybe we see the pro in that cultural mindset. But there's a lot of cons, right? What happens when you're true to yourself and you're just a jerk, you know? What happens when you try your best in life but you actually don't accomplish everything you kind of sought out to do? Maybe if you're there, you experience maybe a sort of background feeling of guilt about how little you accomplish each day. Do you feel weighed down by needing to do everything? How's your heart? My goal in this message is to give at least one example of what happens when we experience God's presence with our whole selves. And I'm a two-point sermon kind of a guy. So, two points here. One, it's okay to be a limited, finite human. Actually, you don't have a choice. We're all limited, finite humans, aren't we? And two, God's presence is overwhelmingly restful and motivating. I'm calling that term peaceful zeal. We're going to see what I'm calling peaceful zeal in the story of Elijah. So if you want to flip to 1 Kings chapter 19, we'll, we'll be there in just a bit. But I want to highlight a thread that we'll see. If you're like me, when you think of Elijah, you kind of see him as 
almost like a superhero or like a super prophet. If you know the story, you know, he's calling down fire. He's yelling at kings. He runs super fast. Like it's like a superhero type of thing, right? But the threat I actually want us to see from Elijah's story is actually his weaknesses, his humanity. I think we might see that Elijah might just be relatable in a way. More importantly, we're going to see what God's presence does to Elijah in that state. We're going to do some context work. First Kings chapter 17 and 18, you know, it kind of starts the series of events in Elijah. And uh, <laughs> unlike a lot of other people in Scripture, Elijah has no introduction. It just kind of, he just kind of shows up. It just kind of starts. He has no intro like, hey man, my name's Elijah, you know, I'm a prophet. He doesn't do that. He literally just shows up to Israel's king, Ahab at the time, and just starts yelling at him. <laughs> he says this, as God lives before whom I stand, there's not going to be any dew or rain. In other words, there's going to be a drought, which is bad news if you're Ahab, who's the new king in town, right? That's not a good look. Implicitly, that drought is maybe judgment. Ahab married Jezebel, who was a, a pagan queen. And Jezebel made Baal the new god. So they're passing these policies, these laws, let's bow down to Baal. And Ahab's like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's bow, bow down to, to Baal. You know, it sounds good. But Ahab is the new king, right? I think God causing this drought is basically God saying in one sense, actually, I'm king here, right? Further than that, because they're bowing down to Baal, I think God is actually showing that he's God. Maybe this drought is for Ahab and Jezebel to repent of their ways. Regardless, what Elijah said was going to happen, there's got, not going to be any dew or rain, that actually happens. It's a really bad drought. Rivers are drying up. People think they're going to die. Elijah namely spent some time with a widow and her son. They think they're going to die. And it's funny because I don't know if we understand how bad droughts can be because the city of Denton just tells us to water our, our lawn a little bit less when there's a drought. <laughs> Regardless, after three years into the drought, God sends Elijah to confront King Ahab a second time. But in the story, before Ahab and Elijah have that conversation, in the story, another prophet of the Lord shows up, a guy named Obadiah. He's actually an important character for, I think, where we're going today. Obadiah was the prophet of the Lord who stayed in the king's court while Elijah was in the wilderness with the widow and her son. The Bible describes Obadiah as a man who greatly feared the Lord. He's trying to stay faithful while doing his job under the king. He even hid other godly prophets and made sure that they were fed during the drought. He, I mean, Obadiah risked a lot. And he's important because Elijah knew him. They knew each other. They knew each other as prophets. They both served Yahweh. Elijah and Obadiah even met up in the story and had a conversation about what God called Elijah to do. So through Obadiah, the prophet of the king's court, Elijah meets up with Ahab again and challenges him. Whereas last time Elijah confronted him and then hid in the wilderness, this time Elijah confronts Ahab and says, meet me on the mountain, Mount Carmel, 
Let's see whose God is real. The challenge was to build an altar and ask their God to send down fire. Whichever God sent down the fire, burnt the offering, that was God. Ahab agreed and sent 450 prophets to meet Elijah on the mountain, along with a lot of Israelites. Hundreds of people are looking at these two prophets. I'm sorry, the 450 prophets, not Elijah, in anticipation. The tension's high. Who is God? That's the question. So the prophets of Baal start cutting up their bowl. They're stacking on the wood. They're aggressively praying to Baal. They pray for hours. They were screaming at the end of it, cutting themselves, doing everything they could to get Baal to show up. Depending on your personality, here's where we see a little glimpse of of how relatable Elijah might be. He starts making fun of Baal, right? He says, hey guys, maybe Baal is on that vacation he talked about. Maybe he's on that Alaskan cruise he was talking about, right? Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's taking a nap. Elijah was just jabbing at them with all these these remarks, totally making fun of them. But there's one thing he mentions that I I really want to highlight here. And this is that thread that I mentioned. Elijah says these exact words, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. And if you're kind of reading this story more carefully, you might say, hang on. What about Obadiah? What about your friend Obadiah? Isn't he also a prophet of the Lord? Didn't you just talk to him the other day? Maybe there's a hint of pride in Elijah. Or maybe he really does feel like he's the only one who's faithfully doing God's will. Let's keep tracing the trend, the thread rather, see what happens. Continuing the story, after hours and hours of praying and screaming, the, the prophets of Baal eventually give up. I mean, they're done. Baal did not answer them. It's Elijah's turn now. If you know the story, you know what happens. Elijah prays, and God does send down fire. But this fire was not like any other fire. This fire consumed Not only the bowl offering, not only the wood, but the stones that the altar was built with. It consumed everything. This was obvious to everybody there. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the true God. Everyone who just saw that started worshiping. Everyone except the prophets of Baal, of course, who Elijah commanded to be killed. Elijah, who'd been hiding with the widow, had finally made his grand appearance, boldly. And his grand God boldly showed up so that there's no doubt who the real God is. That's the story so far. And it's just really a brief overview. Let's slow down a little bit here, though, and see what happens next. In my opinion, 1 Kings 19 is one of the greatest Old Testament passages. So, Let's look at 1 Kings 19. Let's just look at the first three verses here. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the one, the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. 
And Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba, that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. And we'll stop right there. Based on the story so far, Elijah won. The God of Israel proved himself. Wouldn't you think the king and queen of Israel would acknowledge that? Maybe even repent from their Baal worship? I believe this whole time Elijah really was calling them to repent and to remember the covenant that Yahweh had made with them. But that's obviously not what happened here. Jezebel heard what happened from Ahab and said, hey, you killed my prophets, I'm killing you. And it scared Elijah, and it made him run about 90 miles outside of Israel and into Judah. Brother Elijah was scared. He left his servant at the local town, and and let's continue to see what happened next here. Starting in verse 4 through verse 9. But Elijah went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough. Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him. The angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and and touched him. He said, get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, ate, and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave there and spent the night. And we'll stop right there. At this point in Israel's history... The wilderness was an important location. I mean, you can just read through the Old Testament, and it mentions hundreds of times how the Lord brought the people out of the land of Egypt and how they spent a lot of time in the wilderness. Elijah was doing that. He was reliving that. He was tapping into that wilderness tradition. Why? Because he's in a dark place. He needs an encounter with God. He's in a place where he doesn't want to live anymore. Let's just look at the string of events that led up to this. So twice, right? The first time Elijah confronted Ahab boldly, tells him there's going to be a drought, and there's a drought. The second time, Elijah similarly boldly confronts Ahab, challenges him, and proves that Yahweh is the true God with the fire that he sent down. We see just such a bold picture of Elijah. How did he end up in a place like this? Maybe there really was pride in Elijah. When he mentioned that he was the only prophet of the Lord, when just days before he hung out with another prophet, Obadiah, maybe maybe there was some pride there. Who does Elijah think he is? Makes you question. Does he think he's a superhero? Maybe Proverbs 16, 18 applies here, which says pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. But I don't think so. I actually think 
Elijah really did feel alone in his ministry. And I believe he felt that so much was asked of him. And that he tried his absolute best. And yet it didn't accomplish the goal of repentance from Israel's rulers like he wanted it to. Right? Verse 4 says, I've had enough. I've had enough. Take my life. I'm no better than my father's. He says, I've tried my best to be faithful, but I'm really not good enough. I'm no better than the guy before me. You see, I think Elijah was bearing the weight of Israel's sin and shame. And I think he genuinely believed that if he did everything just right, everybody would be happy. The Lord would honor um, what he did and cause Israel and his rulers to return to the Lord. But what's happening here is Elijah's colliding with his limits. And he's in utter despair about it. He's exhausted and he passes out. Sometimes we can be in a similar place. In Kelly Capick's amazing book, You're Only Human, he points out this phenomenon. Listen to this. He says, what we do matters. We can and do change things, but when we suppose that we can control all our circumstances, we soon find that we can't. We don't say the words, but we live as though the weight of the world were on our own shoulders. And it exhausts us. Behind the patient grin on our faces, we hide a lingering rage about the endless demands that must be met, unrealized dreams, and relational disappointments. He continues, the odd thing is that even when we run into our inevitable limits, we often hang on to the delusion that if we just work harder, if we simply squeeze tighter, if we become more efficient, we can eventually regain control. We imagine we can keep our children safe, our income secure, and our bodies whole. He says, denying our finitude or finiteness cripples us in ways we don't realize. It also distorts our view of God and what Christian spirituality should look like. Far too often our lives testify to the fact that we believe we really can and should do everything. Have you felt that? Do you currently feel that maybe? Another way to, to ask this, and this is interactive, raise your hand if you're tired today. Pretty much all of us. Raise your hand if you've been tired for the past, like, three years. Right. So you feel this. Elijah was in a similar place. He passed out in the wilderness. It was too much. He had had enough. So what happened next in the story? It says suddenly a presence, an angel who is described as the angel of the Lord. Many scholars believe that's God in, in physical form. And what does this angel do? The, the angel touches him. The angel tells him to eat. In this moment, God's reminding Elijah that he's only human. Elijah needed to eat and to sleep. Elijah needed a comforting physical touch. God's reminding Elijah that he's dependent not independent. 
and that he can't bear the weight on himself. And the wisdom's pretty practical, isn't it? I mean, if we don't eat, if we don't sleep, we can't think clearly, we can't really function. Interestingly enough, I mean, the angel of the Lord could have touched Elijah and just fixed everything in his life. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, fixed it. But the wisdom of God's counsel really comes through here. God knew Elijah needed sleep, knew Elijah needed food, knew Elijah needed comfort. Even more than that, the Lord wanted to remind Elijah that he was exactly where he needed to be. That that moment was where Elijah belonged. Here in his approach with Elijah, God is proving that he is the good shepherd. He's proving that he's the wonderful counselor. Remember that wilderness tradition Elijah was kind of tapping into with with Moses and, and Israel? I think it starts becoming really clear here that Elijah was tapping into that. Back in Exodus 15, we see that God provided the Israelites with manna, with water, and with meat. God provided for them and is providing for Elijah in the same way. We also see the timeline of 40 years in the desert back with the Israelites. It parallels Elijah's 40 days and 40 nights of travel through the wilderness in verse 8. And lastly, Elijah is going to Mount Horeb, which the passage calls the mountain of God. It's because it's also known by the name of Mount Sinai. That's where Moses and God met often. One moment in particular I want to point out, Exodus 20, 21, it states, The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. In Moses' case, thick darkness wasn't actually a good thing. It was a, it was a sign of judgment from God, judgment against his people for their pride, etc. But remember, Elijah's not having a moment of pride here. But I do think darkness still applies. It's a, it's a different kind of darkness, right? It's the darkness maybe from Genesis 1, just chaos, darkness. It's a darkness from Job 28, which says, Man searches out the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. God is in Elijah's darkness, not to judge him. Although there are plenty of passages about God, God's darkness or God's judgment related to darkness. In this case, God is in Elijah's darkness to bring light, to restore him. Back to the story, Elijah goes up to Mount Sinai and entered a cave there and spent the night. Let's continue in verse 9 through 14 to see what happened next. Suddenly the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains, was shattering cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. 
after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, God of armies, he replied. But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. This moment was the moment that I've referenced before. I think this is one of the greatest Old Testament moments. Let's walk through what we just read. Elijah spent this night in the cave, and and then the voice of God came and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah might be thinking, I'm doing what you told me to do. You know, you fed me so I could make it here in the 40-day journey. What do you mean, what am I doing here? I might be going through his head. But Tim Keller was really helpful on this point. He says, when God asks you a question, it's never to give him information, it's to give you information. And I think that's that's pretty good. That is such a helpful view there. And the Lord asks this question twice, once in verse 9, once in verse 13, and Elijah responds similarly both times. But notice, God is is mostly just listening to Elijah here. Do I have any verbal processors in the room? I think Elijah was verbally processing what he thought was going on, and, and God listened. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Notice that thread. He he again says, I alone am left. This feeling of loneliness, this feeling of, I've had enough. I can't do it. Elijah's being honest as far as he knows. He's saying, I've done everything to call Israel and its rulers back to your covenant. And it doesn't sound like a rehearsed line. This is him expressing how he feels. Then what happens, right? God says, go, stand on the mountain, and three things happen. One, a a great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and shattering cliffs, an earthquake that shook the entire mountain, and a fire that charred the rocks and burnt anything on it. And for all three of these signs, it says, but the Lord was not in it. It's fascinating, because in his ministry up until this point, Elijah saw Yahweh be in in, in moments like that, in, in forces like that. He saw Yahweh's power over creation in fire, in a drought. And it contrasted Baal's, you know, supposed power. And Elijah fled to be with God in the wilderness, but maybe Elijah, one of the reasons he felt like he had had enough, maybe the, one of the reasons he was distraught and in despair was that he was hoping for another supernatural sign from God to bring Israel's rulers back. Maybe that's what he was hoping for. Even in other places, like Psalm 18 and Exodus 3, the God was in forces like that. 
But our passage explicitly states Yahweh is not in them. The voice coming after the supernatural displays of nature tell Elijah that the Lord does not plan on making himself known like he did on Mount Carmel. And he doesn't plan on handling Ahab and Jezebel that way this time. Yahweh is in the whisper. And with that whisper, Yahweh does something better than overthrowing kings and casting down judgment. God's word restores. God's presence softens our hearts, opens our ears, gives us new life. God's word does something in us. The King James Version of this passage, it calls that whisper a still, small voice. What a moment. All of a sudden, the darkness that he was feeling has been lit. The clouds have cleared. The sun is warming him. Peace overwhelms him. He's recreated. We might ask the question, what's the point? Right? Why did God do it like this? I don't get it, right? And then why did God speak softly at the end of all, all three of these events? In verse 11, God tells Elijah to get out of the cave and go onto the mountain. See that? But we actually see in verse 13 that he was still in the cave after those three events. More so, it describes these events like this, like, like Tolkien, almost like Lord of the Rings. It says, the wind was great and mighty, and it tore at the mountains and shattered cliffs, and there was an earthquake and a fire. There is simply no way you can be hanging out on the mountain while that's going on. So you can see in verse 3, Elijah stayed. He stayed in the cave. And realize with me what's happening here. Elijah didn't get torn up and shattered. The mountain did. This is the mountain of God. Further than that, Elijah was safe from all the chaos. He was safe in the cave. What's going on there? In this story, these are signs of judgment elsewhere in Scripture. But there's not signs of judgment on Elijah. They're not signs of judgment on Israel's rulers, but on the Lord's own mountain, his mountain. In the cave or the cleft in some translations in the mountain protected Elijah, took the judgment instead of him. It took it on itself so that God could come to Elijah with tenderness. This is a glimpse of the gospel, isn't it? God doesn't give his children judgment. He gives us his healing word. And the only way he can give us his healing word is by his wrath being satisfied. Jesus is the rock. Jesus took the judgment. We are Elijah. Remember that song we sing sometimes, Rock of Ages? It says, Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. This moment's profound for Elijah. Elijah, maybe for the first time in a long time, feels new. 
the darkness in Genesis 1, the chaos in his mind and his heart, the darkness in Job 28, when God spoke, it vanished, and Elijah rested. See how God's peace changes us? I think for us in our modern world, it's, it's really hard to rest like that. Uh, it's really easily interrupted, whether it's your phone or streaming services or your intrusive thoughts. It takes a move of God to rest this deeply. Sometimes it takes loss to rest. In Elijah's case, it was his own plans. He thought he was doing all this for the Lord's glory, all this so that Ahab and Jezebel could repent and come back. His own ministry, it was lost. It didn't work out like that. But this moment with God, God was shepherding him, and it woke him up. And even though Elijah, notice Elijah, responded with the same exact thing to God's second question, the tone was completely different. He knew the Lord in a deeper way. He trusted the Lord to a deeper level. Elijah still wanted to do something for, rather, about Israel's apostasy. But this time, he wanted to do it God's way. He's asking God what the game plan is with his second response. And we get that based on how the Lord responds to Elijah. So look at verses 15 to 18 with me. Then the Lord said to him, Go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazael as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, as prophet in your place. Then Jehu will, be, will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. Verse 18, but I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The Lord responds and essentially tells Elijah the plan. And one thing to note here, in God's response, he doesn't even mention Ahab and, and Jezebel. He mentions two other kings that Elijah is supposed to anoint. Jehu is supposed to replace Ahab, and then Elijah is told to anoint a pagan king, Hazael, over Aram, which isn't even part of Israel or Judah. Elijah simply could not have seen this coming, right? But Yahweh had a plan. He says, I've got this, two new kings, one new prophet. You're going to help me do it. You're going to help me pave the way. At the same time, I recognize you feel alone in all of this. But I have 7,000 in Israel who have not given in to Baal. A couple interesting things to note here. Elijah is not actually the one who anoints these kings. Elisha, his successor, is actually the one to do that. The point of that is to show that God's plan will go forward, not as a result of Elijah's efforts, but of God's plan. In other words, Elijah's, in other words, Elijah's time is coming to an end. It's Elisha's turn. You know, what do you think was going through Elijah's head at that time? You know, what was going through his mind? How do you think he felt? 
When we try really hard for something, ministry-related or not ministry-related, when we try really hard something for God's glory and then it, it didn't actually turn out how we expected, I think we fall into two camps in that, in that moment, right? We either think we failed God or that God's failed us. Neither of these can be true in Elijah's story. Elijah was faithful. He was not prideful in his ministry. He did everything God asked him to do. And then God, on the other hand, was also faithful. God was not prideful. And God kept his promises. So what does this all mean for us? When we reach our limit in life, it's not automatically sinful. Elijah was at his limit, and he felt like a failure. But Elijah was not a failure. Additionally, sin didn't cause Elijah to not achieve his goals. There's no evidence here that Elijah was unfaithful to Yahweh or to Israel. Granted, he wasn't perfect. But this story, I think, teaches us a couple things. Undeserved blessing and undeserved hardships are not contingent on us doing everything perfectly. Undeserved blessing and undeserved hardships are not contingent on us doing everything perfectly. We're only human. We can only do so much. And sometimes we wrongly attribute all our problems to sin when sometimes... Our problems are just a matter of running up against the limits inherent and being finite creatures instead of being God. We are, by God's good design, finite. It's not sinful to not be able to do everything perfectly. It's actually sinful to ever think that we could. Do you see how God cared for Elijah in his humanness and brokenness. Uh, God was genuinely caring for Elijah's needs, both physical and mental. And not only was God caring for his needs, but God was tending to a spiritual wound the whole time. Elijah's not superhuman. Elijah does not control everything. Elijah was bound by the lie that the whole weight of Israel's sin was on his shoulders. It wasn't. It was on God's the entire time. We're never asked to relate to God in in any other way than as human creatures. In fact, when we relate to God like this, it makes us dependent on him and ultimately glorifies him. We need him. The goal of the Christian life is not to make you superhuman. It's just to make you truly human. And to be truly human is to be dependent. It's one thing to talk about God's word or talk about God's love or about his presence But when was the last time 
You experienced it. I think we throw around verses and clever phrases about God's love, but do you feel it? Is it real to you? Do you even want to feel God's presence? Do you want to be near to him? I had a similar experience that Elijah did earlier this year. I didn't pray and fire came down. I didn't pray for a drought and it happened or anything like that. (laughs) But it was Josh Yen's birthday, if you know Josh. And uh, he invited a group of guys to go on a hiking trip. I love hiking. I've always loved hiking. But this probably wasn't the kind of hiking you were you're thinking of, maybe. This was backpacking. And I was like, oh yeah, no big deal. But it was it was seriously difficult. It was hiking with some chest hair. Uh, we carried 50-pound backpacks for four days straight. And if that doesn't sound very hard, uh, you probably haven't done it. <laughs> or you're just built different, right? Either way, to make it worse, none of us knew where we'd be going. We had guides, of course, but they wouldn't tell us where we were going. That included where we'd set up camp for the night, when we'd take water breaks, how many miles we'd hike. Oh, and by the way, these guides were way younger than us, like decades younger than some of the guys. It was a struggle at times to trust them, but on we'd go. You know, after a couple of days of hiking, um, most of us were pretty tired. <laughs> I personally was exhausted, especially because I have a pretty strong mental clock, and I theoretically knew how long we'd, be walk- we'd been walking. In fact, that's actually all I thought of. <laughs> I was uh, starting to get really salty and angry, and it was not a good place. I, you know, especially when it snowed um, unexpectedly, and we kept going, and then it kept snowing, and... We had to keep going. I, you know, I felt like I wasn't prepared. We weren't getting enough sleep. I didn't have waterproof boots. My brain just went on and on. And I was getting salty, you know. Here I am just trying to have a good time with Josh on his birthday, and I'm just kind of mad. Uh, we eventually start summiting a mountain, which none of us expected to do, where if you've done it before, every three or four steps, you are completely out of breath. It's really hard to imagine unless you've experienced it, but I recommend you do it because summiting a really tall mountain is unreal. I mean, the quietness of it up there is stunning, and actually, my thoughts of worry and frustration started to fade a little bit. We just sat there for a while, but actually, contrary to what you might be thinking, that's not where I felt the Lord's presence. I hiked down, you know, we hiked down the mountain and camped out at a camp called Cold Camp. And it was named that because it was really cold. Uh, But we had the the following morning to ourselves. The the next morning, it was also cold, but we had coffee and we just had a lot of free time to kind of reflect. I didn't really have anything on my mind at that moment other than relief, you know, relief from Wearing a backpack, relief from having to socialize 24-7, kind of an introvert. Um, That morning, I just sat there. Um, We could see the mountain we had just hiked. It was so far up. 
it was mind-blowing that we had hiked all the way down that and all the way up it, of course. The, the coldness of the air was refreshing. We were kind of in this valley, so no matter where you look, it was just beautiful views. Creatures were waking up and scurrying. Birds started to chirp. It was like Narnia in a way. Um, one thing that they gave us along the trip was a, a devotional, and there was a question that, that said this. It says, why do you think God brought you on this trip? And I was like, well, for Josh's birthday, obviously. Uh, but the question really stuck with me. Uh, I actually didn't have an answer. And I realized that morning that I'd been so distant from God for like the past six months up at that point. And despite serving a lot at church, you know, despite leading Bible studies and reading my Bible, um, I'd been so distant from God. My heart was hard and cold, and it was a cold camp, but I started to warm spiritually. God was moving in my heart, and the sun kind of started to rise and crested over the mountain, and so I was physically getting warm, and it was this picture of what was going on in my, in my heart, that God was so near, and he was warming me, making me new. My internal clock, which is always going, it stopped. Time didn't matter at that point. Only Jesus mattered at that moment. And a peace, just like the hymn says, it just, like a river attended my way. God at that moment was present, and his warmth reminded me that I didn't have to be in control. In fact, I needed to stop pretending that I was ever in control to begin with. He reminded me that I was human and that I was dependent. He reminded me that my dependence glorified him. But it didn't make me want to just sit back and do nothing. It made me want to do something. Uh, just like with Elijah... My response was the same. I wanted to go back and do the same things, but the tone was different. It was from a renewed heart, a renewed spirit. I felt I'd been recreated. Do you have a mountaintop kind of experience with God that you look back on? You don't need to be in Colorado to have one. Do you have maybe an anchor moment that when apathy sets in, it pulls you back into his arms? Do you want that? Do you want to be with God? Don't let your human limits prevent you. Be still with God and hear the whisper. Let's pray. Father God, we're blown away by how tenderly you deal with us. We're blown away by your spirit making us new. In fact, every day is new. Today is new. This hour is new. We thank you for making things new in our life. You're doing it now. You'll continue to do so. I mentioned at the beginning, 
I don't know what anybody's bringing into church today. Whatever it is, I pray that your spirit would move, that we would respond like we will in a moment in worship. That if something is going on in our heart, we wouldn't be afraid to ask a pastor or an elder about it. Oftentimes, we struggle to even want God. I pray that whatever is going on in our heart, if we feel led, um, that we would talk to a pastor or elder here in just a bit. Lord, we love you so much. We love you that you took the wind, the earthquake, the fire for us so that you can speak tenderly to us. Let us slow down and listen. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.